Okay, thank you very much indeed. Well, good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you all. It's lovely to welcome Hannah back. Um, delighted that you're here and uh, making a good recovery. And uh, this morning, we also welcome Taff, uh, who's down from Port Elizabeth. He's been working with Kenny and Rose Lloyd in Port Elizabeth doing student ministry, and he's come to GWC to do his BTH. So a very warm welcome to you too. It's lovely to have you here. Well, I do hope you've all got uh, a Bible open in front of you. If you haven't and would like one, please raise your hand and someone will bring a Bible to you. But uh, do please have a Bible open. Uh, I think it will make uh, more sense to you. And uh, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Well, it's a, a bright and sunny day in a dark and difficult world. And Lord, you know all about the difficulties and the struggles, but how desperately we need light from heaven, light from God, to help us understand who we are and why we're here and where we're going. So won't you do that great work for us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series, which we began last Sunday, we're thinking about what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Uh, it's a very bold claim which Jesus makes twice in John's Gospel. Uh, most people, I think, have heard those words at some time or other. But what on earth do they mean? Did he perhaps mean that uh, he has some special insight into human affairs that other people in the world don't have? Uh, after all, there are plenty of people in history, aren't there, who seem to have a special ability to shed light on world events. And such people always gather a following and quite right too. I suppose Nelson Mandela is the most famous example in this country. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, why he is so admired by most South Africans is that he had a unique insight, didn't he, into the complicated and very difficult situation in this country during the apartheid years. And it enabled him to share a, a vision for the future that people could get really excited about. And so in that sense, I guess Nelson Mandela was a ray of light in a pretty dark situation. Now when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, is he perhaps saying something like that? Well, in order to find the answer, we need to look at the context in which Jesus spoke those words, uh, which is, of course, the miracle recorded for us in John chapter 9, where Jesus meets this man who's been blind from birth, and he, he does two things for him. We looked at these last week, but first of all, he cures the man of his physical blindness, something that no one had ever heard of before, but then he also opens his mind so that he could, for the first time, begin to see who Jesus really is. 
And do you remember we said that John is using this particular miracle to teach us what genuine Christian conversion is really all about. If you weren't here last Sunday, uh, you might want to listen to last week's message on one of the various social media platforms. But my purpose this morning is to show you the three different reactions that people had to this miracle at the time. And the reason we're doing that is because they are exactly the same reactions that we see to Christian conversion all around us today. And I hope as we do that, we'll see even more clearly than we did last Sunday morning what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. We can summarize the three reactions as follows. So one group responds to the miracle with a deadly pride. A deadly pride. Then another group responds with a blinding fear. And then in dramatic contrast to the first two of those, the man himself becomes a straightforward witness. So firstly then, a deadly pride. And the first reaction here comes from the Pharisees. Now in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the established authority on all religious and legal matters, and they had been so for many years. Many of them, it has to be said, were genuinely brilliant men. So it was perfectly understandable that when the people saw the miracle that Jesus performed, that they'd come to the Pharisees first to get an expert opinion. But now what's so shocking, I think, is that in spite of the Pharisees' intimate knowledge of the Scriptures, and they did know their Bibles backwards, when the Pharisees are confronted with this extraordinary miracle, they ask precisely the wrong question. The question crops up a number of times in the passage, but it's most clearly stated for us in verse 16. Have a look at verse 16, if you will. Some of the Pharisees were asking, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? Now, can you see that their prejudice, their prejudice against Jesus simply oozes out of that question. And that's terribly familiar, isn't it? Uh, one of the reasons that many people today feel themselves to be far removed from God is that they ask the wrong questions about Jesus. And I'm not here talking about people who've never read a Bible or people who never go to church. No, I'm talking about people who have plenty of access to both. They want to know that God accepts them. Yes, they do. They want that assurance. But the truth is that they want God to accept them on their terms. So when they find themselves face to face with Jesus, maybe even in a service rather like this, they ask the wrong questions, not out of naivety, not by mistake but often out of sheer 
pride. They've already made up their minds that they don't want Jesus Christ to be their Lord. They've got no problem at all with Jesus as their saviour. They've got no problem at all with Jesus the great teacher. They've got no problem at all with Jesus as the marvellous example. But Jesus as Lord of my life? No, thank you very much. That's asking too much. Now, friends, that is what's going on with the Pharisees in John chapter 9. Now, you may remember last week we said that uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' miracles are called signs. They're signs pointing beyond themselves to tell us who Jesus really is and why it matters. So as the religious experts of the day, what the Pharisees ought to have said is something like this. Here is this man uh, who's been blind from birth and Jesus has opened his eyes. Uh, All of his neighbours, everyone who knew him, confirm that is precisely what's happened. So what does that tell us about Jesus? Are there perhaps any clues in the Bible that could point us in the right direction? That's what they should have asked. And the answer to that question is, yes, there are plenty. So please keep one finger in John chapter 9 and travel with me to Isaiah 42 in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 42 in the Old Testament. Now, while you're turning there, let me tell you that in this passage, Isaiah is allowing us to listen in to a conversation between Almighty God and the King that God was going to send into the world to sort out all the problems. And we pick up the conversation at verse 5. Isaiah 42, verse 5. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. And now God goes on to explain to the king what the king is going to be commissioned to do. Verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Now pay close attention. To open eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So, when God's king comes into the world, how will we recognize him? How will we know when he's arrived? What will we see him doing? Well, according to this passage, he's going to be opening eyes that are blind. So I hope you can see that it's perfectly clear, isn't it, that if the Pharisee had asked the right question about Jesus, they couldn't possibly have missed the answer. But they didn't. 
So come back to John 9, because instead the Pharisees asked a very different question. They asked, how did Jesus do this miracle? Now don't be taken in by that. Uh, they weren't asking that question because they were sort of interested in health care. Blindness was a huge problem back in the first century. And uh, if this man's health had been their concern, their question would have been entirely appropriate. But it wasn't their concern. No, they asked this particular question because in their pride they'd already made up their mind about Jesus. And the only explanation they were willing to accept was one that wouldn't ruffle their religious framework or challenge their status in the community. So they were only interested in proving that Jesus was a lawbreaker in order to trash his reputation. How do we know that? Well, just have a look at verse 22. Verse 22. Already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. The emphasis in that sentence is on the word already. They had already reached a conclusion before they'd even considered the evidence. Now, friends, that kind of spiritual blindness has been with us for at least 2,000 years in all kinds of shapes and sizes. So to take uh, one example from history, uh, history tells us about a movement which uh, began towards the end of the 18th century called the Enlightenment. Some of you will have heard about it. The Enlightenment was essentially a pagan movement. But whether you realize it or not, it has profoundly shaped the way that people think today. So it was the time when men and women began to turn away from God and they were saying to one another, um, human reason is all we need to discover the truth about man, the world, how to live. Human reason is all that we need. There's no such thing as miracles. And if God exists at all, he's left us to get on with it by ourselves. So that's what we've got to do. But my dear friends, 250 years after the Enlightenment, human reason has not been enough, has it, to tell us why we're here, what this world is all about, or how human beings can get on together. No, people, I think, are crying out for genuine, satisfying answers to these really important questions. But, like the Pharisees, so many people refuse to even consider the possibility that Jesus might actually be the answer. Their pride won't let them do it. So that's the first response to Jesus from the first group, a deadly pride. Let's move on and consider the second response, which is a blinding fear. The second response comes from the parents of the man born blind. 
And uh, to understand what's going on here, we've really got to put ourselves in their shoes because they were in a very difficult situation. Their testimony was absolutely vital because they were the only people who could confirm that their son had been blind from birth. So the Pharisees call them in as key witnesses and they ask them exactly the same question as before. Verse 19. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Now, the man's parents here are extremely evasive, aren't they? They say, we know he's our son, we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. Now friends, that is a very strange answer, isn't it? I mean, think about it, if any of us had had the experience of seeing one of our own children healed in this most marvellous way, surely we'd be falling over ourselves, wouldn't we? To tell anybody who would listen. But not these parents. They were too frightened, and we've already seen the reason. Because the Pharisees have decided that anybody who said Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And what you and I need to understand this morning is that to be excluded from synagogue fellowship in those days was to be cut off from every aspect of life in the local community. It made it almost impossible to find work and therefore feed your family. So we just need to be cautious before we rush to judge these parents. But what I do want us to notice is the terrible spiritual blindness that is created by fear. You see, these people knew the truth about their son far better than anybody else. They knew that a unique miracle had taken place. But their fear was actually greater than their desire to find out more about Jesus. And you need to know that the tragedy is that in the rest of John's Gospel, there is no evidence whatsoever that they ever took things further. They never asked any more questions. Now that's very familiar, isn't it? A friend of ours in the UK was saying a few years ago that uh, this person, she works in a senior position in one of the local councils over there and uh, she says that it is no longer acceptable to talk about Christianity in her office. Uh, On Monday you can talk about your experience in the mosque or the synagogue or whatever other religious experience you might have had over the weekend but the one thing you absolutely must not do is talk about Jesus. Because if you do, you'll be cut off. You might even lose your job. Now think about that. Only a few generations ago, Britain was sending out missionaries with the gospel all over the globe. And now, well, it's politically incorrect even to talk about it. And the result is many people are frightened. And because they're frightened, they don't ask questions. They don't want to know more. They would rather 
stay blind. Now, we are not in quite such an extreme situation here in South Africa at the moment, but I've got to tell you it's coming. The signs are there. So you and I must make the best of every single opportunity that the Lord God puts in front of us before people get too scared to listen. So, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the third reaction to this miracle, which is the response of the man himself, who becomes a straightforward witness. Uh, John summarizes the man's testimony for us in verse 25, and I don't know whether you know it or not, but uh, his words have been adopted by countless Christians over the centuries as a nice summary of their own experience. I think it's very striking that John doesn't even tell us this man's name, and yet his testimony is amongst the most celebrated in the whole of the New Testament. Now why is that? What gives this man's testimony its remarkable power? Well, three things, I think. First, his testimony is simple. Now that doesn't mean it's superficial. It doesn't mean it's lacking in substance. I'm sure you know that that is never the New Testament picture of conversion. The Bible always assumes that genuine believers have done their homework and will continue to do so. So, for example, some of you know that a tremendous illustration in the book of Acts where the Bereans heard the gospel from the lips of the apostle Paul, but they immediately checked up on him in their Bibles to see if he was telling the truth, and they were commended for it. So when I say that this man's testimony is simple, what I mean is it is not technical. Now where do we see that? Well, we've just seen that the, the Pharisees are desperate to convict Jesus on a technical breach of the law. So verse 24, just remind yourself of verse 24, they summon the man a second time. They say, give glory to God. In other words, tell us the truth. We want, we know, we know that this man is a sinner. Now, what they mean by that is, you know, come on, agree with us that Jesus is guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And what they're trying to do is to invalidate this man's testimony on a technical argument. But you see, the man won't get drawn in. And I think he shows wonderful wisdom and courage here. Because in verse 25, the man replies, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. In other words, I'm not really qualified to engage on these technical matters. You're the experts. You make up your own mind. I think that shows real wisdom, doesn't it? So you see, having had this tremendous experience of having his eyes opened and beginning to see who Jesus is, he doesn't pretend to be a theological expert with all the answers. I mean, if he did, no one would believe him anyway. Now, instead, he's absolutely realistic about what he doesn't yet know. 
and he refuses to give an opinion on subjects on which he has no clear answer. Now, I think all of us, me included, can learn something from that. This man's testimony is simple. Secondly, his testimony is short. Now, generally speaking, the shorter the testimony, the greater the impact. This man is a model of brevity. He sticks ruthlessly to what he knows to be true in his own experience. So, what does this man know? Two things. He knows something about the past, and he knows something about the present. What does he know about the past? Well, it's just three words. You can't get any simpler and shorter than that. I was blind. Now, in one sense, he knew that before. But you see, until the Lord Jesus opened his eyes, he couldn't fully appreciate what that meant. Because obviously, a person who's been blind from birth can't fully understand what they were missing until they can see. And it's exactly the same with Christian conversion. So friends, countless, countless Christians today would describe their experience something like this. They would say, well, yes, I was a member of my local church. Um, I was attending regularly. I was involved in all kinds of different activities. If somebody had suggested I wasn't a Christian, I would have been deeply insulted. But then, one day, Jesus opened my eyes and he turned my understanding of the gospel upside down. You see, before that day, I thought that uh, if I was good enough, then my life would be pleasing to God and one day he'd let me into heaven. But when Jesus opened my eyes, I understood that I could actually receive the offer of free forgiveness now and begin a completely new relationship with God, not as my judge, but as my father. And I found that I was set free to live my life in a completely new way. Now, I don't know, but that might be an accurate description of what's happened to some of you here this morning. You can see now that there was a time when you were spiritually blind. So that's what this man knows about his past. What does he know about the present? Four words. But now I see. So by the light that he's been given, this man has a growing understanding of who Jesus is, which is absolutely normal Christian experience. And John, you'll notice in the chapter, he sketches out the growth curve in this man's knowledge for us. So look at verse 11 where the man doesn't really know very much. He says that the person who opened his eyes is simply the man they call Jesus. Then a little bit later in the chapter, in his interview with the Pharisees, he gets to the point where he knows that what has happened to him must be a work of God. 
Now, we can't say for sure, but perhaps at this point he's thinking about some of those marvelous miracles in the Old Testament done by Elisha and Elijah. So when in verse 17, the Pharisees ask him who he believes Jesus to be, he says, he's a prophet. And it's only much later in that same day, after further revelation from Jesus, in verse 35 and following, that the man gets to the point where he can see that what's happened to him isn't simply a work of God, but that standing before him is God himself. And in verse 38, the man says to Jesus, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So can you see, by, by the new light that Jesus has given him, he's able to see by the end of the chapter who Jesus really is, and he worships him. And my dear brothers and sisters, can I say to you this morning, that is the heart of all Christian testimony. You see, the question that people want you to answer is not do you believe in God, because quite frankly, everyone believes in God. Now, what makes us Christian is if we can honestly say, I worship Jesus, because that cuts through all the waffle, doesn't it? And then thirdly, we notice that his testimony is not only simple and short, and here's a really important point. It is unshakable. I think from our 21st century standpoint, I think it's very easy to underestimate the kind of pressure that this man was under. Uh, the authorities want him to deny what, is happen what has happened. Um, his parents are terrified you know, how very easy it would have been, wouldn't it, for this man to say, well, you know, now you mention it, perhaps I was mistaken. Um, you know, I, I went to the opticians last week and uh, they thought there was some possibility that, you know, maybe in a week or two, perhaps I might be able to see. And yes, I suppose Jesus did do these things on the Sabbath. So I suppose technically, yes, perhaps Jesus is a sinner. How very easy it would have been for him to say something like that, but he didn't. He simply can't deny the wonderful and the extraordinary thing that has happened to him. One of the very best commentaries on the Gospel of John was written more than a hundred years ago by Bishop J.C. Ryle. And uh, in his comment on this chapter, he says this, and he's talking here about the, the genuine experience of grace in the life of every true believer. Listen to these words. His or her knowledge may be small, their faith might be feeble, their doctrinal views might be presently confused and indistinct. But if Jesus Christ has really done a work of grace in his heart by his spirit, he feels within him something that no one can overthrow. 
That's rather good, isn't it? And this man, you see, in John chapter 9, stands as a striking example of the fact that when Jesus opens a man's eyes, he opens his mouth as well. You you know this wonderful thing has happened to you, and you can't keep quiet about it. The New Testament is full of examples, isn't it? So when Jesus calls the very first of his disciples right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, what does he say? Come follow me and uh, I will, what? Look after your business interests? uh, Give you a happy marriage? uh, Guarantee you health, wealth and prosperity? Does Jesus say that? No, he doesn't. What Jesus says is, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women. Now friends, that is the mark of genuine New Testament discipleship. If the Lord Jesus has opened your eyes and you can in some way identify with the testimony of the man in John chapter 9, then you will know that many of your friends and family, though they might call themselves Christians, are just as blind as you used to be. You know that. And can I say that the Lord Jesus has put them across your path and brought them into your life so that at the right moment, though it might be inconvenient, though it might provoke hostility, you will open your mouth And you will tell them about the wonderful thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. Well, shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the light of the world, to open our blind eyes so that we can see our desperate need and come to Jesus for healing and a fresh start. To all of us here who've experienced the miracle, grant us the willingness and the boldness to tell other people, I was blind, but now I see And as we do this, please will you take our words and use them to open the blind eyes of our friends and our family and all our loved ones. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.